This war between Israel and Hamas has brought with it not only death and destruction across Israel and Gaza, but it's also inflamed tensions in the U.S. and around the world. For example, here in New York City, community leaders say they've seen an uptick in hate-inspired incidents targeting groups including Jews, Palestinians, and Muslims. There's just so much emotion and passion built into talking about all this. And people have different interpretations, not only of military movements happening right now, but of history itself. Even people who have covered this region for years say it's basically impossible to tell a full history that someone won't take issue with. But it's that history that I want to talk about today. How did we arrive at this moment of all-out war? And what can past events tell us about where this goes next? From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rhine. I'm going to start this episode with an admission. I am not an expert on the history of Israel or Gaza. So I called up someone who knows a lot more than I do. Though importantly, not everything. I will preface that I am not a historian, and even after three years in the region, I will not call myself the ultimate expert. So I highly encourage people to do their own reading and their own research. Hadass Gold is CNN's Jerusalem correspondent. She has been covering this region for years and was there when Hamas attacked earlier this month. Now, some people start this conversation all the way back in biblical times, but let's move a bit ahead to the 1800s. That's when a lot of what the modern kind of issues we see today sort of began. A lot of people talk about Zionists and the Zionism movement, a real political movement to bring Jews back to the biblical land of Israel really began in the 1800s. Adas says there was a lot of discrimination and violence against Jews in Europe at the time, which is part of the reason we saw some of them start to move away. In 1917, there was something called the Balfour Declaration. It was a declaration by the British government announcing its support for the establishment of a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in what was then known as Palestine or British Mandate Palestine. Hadass says there were multiple uprisings, both Arab and Jewish, against that British rule. Then flash forward to World War II. After the Holocaust, a huge wave of Jewish people tried to leave Europe, although in some cases... British tried to stop them. Many of them were turned away. If you've ever read that famous book, Exodus, or seen mm. the movie, that's what it's referring to. A letter to the newspapers. I help wanted add to the official journal of the United Nations. Wanted by 600 men, women, and children, a country, a native land, a home. It's all they're dying for. Just to call attention to Israel without ever having seen it themselves. In 1947, the U.N. issues its partition plan. And if you look at the map that the U.N. issued in 1947 for the partition plan, which envisioned an independent Arab and an independent Jewish state, you can see very clearly the sort of the outlines of the map that we have today. So now we've reached 1948. The British have left and Israel has declared independence. Okay, 1948. And I've heard this year before, so it seems like a big stepping off point. What happens next? So Israel declares independence and five Arab nations invade. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. Saudi Arabia participated, but under Egypt. It lasted until 1949. There was an armistice declared. Egypt got control of Sinai and Gaza. Jordan over the West Bank and East Jerusalem. 1948 is, of course, for Palestinians, is known as the Nakba or catastrophe. 
And that's when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were either expelled or fled from their homes in the land that became Israel. Now, many of them imagined or thought that they would be able to go back. And many of these families actually still hold on to the original keys of their homes. And the key has become really a symbol for the Palestinians of their right to return. Now, some of these people left for the West Bank, some of them left for Gaza, some of them for Jordan, some of them for other places elsewhere. So when you hear the words of things like refugee camp in places like Gaza, these were the original refugee camps that people first came into. Now, many of them are built up places. When you go in there, you're not going to see tents like you might think of a typical refugee camp. It will look like a very crowded city landscape, but many of them are still to this day administered by the UN and all of the descendants of these people are still considered refugees, even if they never stepped foot into the places where their grandparents or great grandparents came from. And even to this day, you might speak to some to a Palestinian from Gaza or from West Bank whose family has been living there since 1948. They will still tell you, I am from XYZ city that is technically in what is now Israel. So when they talk about this kind of displacement and that feeling like that goes back decades and decades and they still consider themselves displaced from that moment. Exactly. And that's why the right of return is such an important issue for Palestinians, because many of them want to return to what was their villages and their homes. Hmm. You mentioned Gaza there. How was the Gaza Strip formed as we kind of know it today? How did it come to be? Okay, so from after the armistice, Egypt had control of Gaza, and that held until the 1967 Six-Day War. Between June 5th and June 10th, Israel defeated Egypt, Jordan, Syria in a big war and made major land gains. They occupied the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. But that's when you start hearing of things like occupation of places like the West Bank. Mm. Because again, until then, Jewish Israelis didn't necessarily have access to East Jerusalem. So they couldn't go to what is considered the holiest place in Judaism. And so when we go back to the partition plan, you look back to that map, you do see a Gaza Strip there that looks Mm. somewhat similar to the Gaza Strip we have today. Then Israel wins the Six-Day War and you have Israel taking control of it. And even in 1967, when Israel takes control of Gaza, they knew it was kind of an issue to take control of Gaza. The then Prime Minister Ashkel called it, what he, I'm going to quote him, a bone stuck in our throats. There had been Jews in Gaza before, but not to the same extent, and many of them had left in the 1920s. So then Israel takes over kind of control of Gaza in 1967, and in the early 1970s, that's when you see Israeli settlements start being built in Gaza. So that's when you see Israeli Jews start moving into Gaza. And why were they moving there? For some people, it's religious reasons. There are some religious connections in Judaism to that area. For some, it was economic. It's an agricultural area. There's fishing there. There was a combination of both religious and not religious settlements that were established there. That changed, though, in the 1980s during the first intifada. So when we talk about intifadas, intifada means an uprising. So there were two major sort of uprisings that we think about, and both involved protests and both violent protests by Palestinians towards Israelis and harsh Israeli crackdowns on Palestinians. And these were over a course of several years. And they're not like, you know, a a typical war where, you know, okay, there's a start and an end and then there's a peace agreement and then everyone's sort of done with it. Then there was the second intifada in the early 2000s. And that's when things really changed. And that's when Ariel Sharon, then Israel's prime minister, announced in late 2003 a plan that centered on withdrawing unilaterally from the Gaza Strip, Israeli soldiers and the settlements. This was very, very controversial, dramatic in Israel because I don't know the exact number of Israelis that were there, but we're not talking about like a couple Mm. hundred. There were thousands, if not tens of thousands, who were being removed 
from their homes there. Israel completely pulls out of the Gaza Strip. The Palestinians hold elections. Hamas is elected. Hmm. And since Hamas took over, there have been several flare-ups between both Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a rival militant group in Gaza and Israel. Rockets, you know, airstrikes. One of the bigger ones was in 2014. Of course, in 2021, I covered that one. That was the last time around. And then it was actually these conflicts and these rockets that partly led to the development of that famous Iron Dome defense system that Israel has. Now, what's interesting is that in the last... I would say maybe it's been two years, few years. Israel has sort of tried to manage the conflict with Hamas, Mm. try to calm the situation. Because keep in mind that Hamas isn't just a militant organization. It's a government. It runs Gaza. They're the ones who are figuring out who collects the trash. They're the ones who are doing all your kind of city administrative stuff. Israel doesn't want to run Gaza. And so what Israel was doing was increasing the number of permits for Gazans to enter Israel and to work. Mm. And you make way more money working in Israel than you do in Gaza, which has a really dire economic situation, partly because of the blockade and the siege. And I I mean, until this happened, I think many Israeli officials thought it was sort of working because Gaza, since 2021, was relatively quiet. And it was the West Bank that was boiling. Now we know that most likely it was because they were planning something. You know, we don't know how long they were planning it, but this idea that this could be that Hamas could sort of be kept quiet and happy through these work permits and through other incentives, um, clearly there were other things going on. That kind of brought us up to today, right? And that brings us to today, which is the largest war crisis that Israel and I think the region has found itself in. You could argue for sure since the Yom Kippur War in 1973, then if if not before. So let me ask about other countries in the region, though, like Iran, because we keep hearing about fears of a a wider war and other factions, whether it be Hezbollah or Iran more widely, possibly getting involved here. What is behind their interest in this conflict between Israel and Hamas? So first of all, I highly encourage people to actually do some reading about the relationship between Iran and Israel because it's fascinating because until the revolution, there was a relationship there. But it, it turned in 1979 during the revolution. There has never been an outright war between the two, but they've been essentially sworn enemies since then. That's why in Iran, you always hear like death to Israel, death right. to America, and they stomp on the Israeli flag. There's an interesting industry about the people who make the Israeli flags in Iran and the American flags just for the sole purpose of burning them. However, even though there hasn't been an outright war, there's been plenty of threats, you know, and plenty of action between the two, whether direct, you know, Mossad operations, killing people in Iran or stealing the nuclear archives in Iran. But what Iran does do that's a more direct threat, you could almost say to Israel, is support proxies in the region. Most notably, of course, these are Hamas. And then in a way, even more importantly, is Hezbollah. And why is that more important? It's because Hezbollah is way more powerful than Hamas. Both are supported by Iran, both in material right? Money and goods and things like that. Training as well, potentially. But before this war, whenever I would speak to Israeli military security officials, past or present, they always talked about the worst case scenario for a regional war would be with Hezbollah. Because Hezbollah, who sits in southern Lebanon, they don't control all of Lebanon, but essentially they control southern Lebanon for sure. They have, of course, a major presence in Lebanon. And some would argue that nothing happens in southern Lebanon without Hezbollah saying it's okay. Their arsenal of missiles and rockets far eclipses that of Hamas. Mm. And they have precision guided missiles. It's like real deal military capability. Yeah. Hamas kind of aims rockets in a certain direction, presses go and hopes they hit something. Mm. Hezbollah has hundreds of thousands 
of missiles, some of them precision guided, and it would be a much different war than what we're seeing currently with Hamas. Now, Hezbollah is getting involved. There's been cross-border action as we speak in the north. In any other situation, I would have said, this is it, this is war, like we're done. But right now it feels like Hezbollah is just sort of waving the participation flag and saying that they're involved. That's interesting, though. You're saying that had this Hamas attack not happened, what we're seeing now at the northern border with Hezbollah, like that would be huge. It would be huge. Oh, my gosh. Because there had been some skirmishes, but often they were either attributed and both sides kind of like winked. We're like, yeah, this was other groups. Now Hezbollah is saying like, yeah, we fired at Israeli military posts. We fired at towns and cities, you know, along the border. Israel's been responding with airstrikes. They've been responding with their own artillery fire. There have been several deaths on both sides, including a journalist who was killed in southern Lebanon. That's huge. But it's just become far outpaced by what's happening in the South. But again, if Hezbollah chooses to get fully involved, we're in a whole different ballgame. More with Hadass Gold after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Tug of War and my conversation with CNN's Hadass Gold, I want to turn now to the West Bank. And if you're looking at a map, that is the region that sits around Jerusalem to the east of Tel Aviv. And an important side note, this is where we find Fatah, which is Hamas's main political rival. They dominate the Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO. And tensions between the PLO and Hamas helped give rise to the Hamas in Gaza as we know it today. And while the West Bank hasn't gotten a ton of headlines recently compared to Gaza, Experts like Hadass say this is a place to keep your eye on as the conflict drags on. Yeah, and it's interesting because up until two weeks ago, the West Bank was almost all I talked about because Gaza was quiet. So Israel considers the West Bank disputed territory. They do not consider it occupied. Almost the rest of the world considers it occupied territory Mm. and considers Israeli settlements. So Israelis going to move, you know, to live in the West Bank to be illegal. Israel refers to the West Bank as Judea and Samaria, to its biblical names. There are several very important biblical places there. We're talking about Hebron. You know, Bethlehem is technically in the West Bank. Now, there are a large number of Israelis who now live in the West Bank. I mean, there must be hundreds of thousands, if not more. Under the Oslo Accords that were signed in the 90s, it split up the West Bank into different areas, area A, B, and C, with different successive levels of who is supposed to be in control of them. But in the reality on the ground, even in the areas that are ostensibly supposed to be completely administered by what we call the Palestinian Authority, Israel will still go in and do raids, incursions into those cities, 
for what they call counterterrorism measures, including in places like Ramallah, which is the seat of the Palestinian Authority. Even though they don't technically control these areas, they're going in and doing these these operations. Yes. They will argue there is a Palestinian Authority security force and they will say, well, we have to go in because the Palestinian Authority security force is not doing its job to go after these militants. And so that's also been what's been increased recently is Israel has been going in with even more intensity into these cities, including in places that were previously very quiet. Now, like in the last year, there had been uh, Israeli operations there to arrest and there have been you know, Palestinian deaths as a result. And there's been, you know, we also don't want to also ignore, you know, the Israeli deaths as a result of Palestinian attacks. So it's been very tense. Now, also what's happening in the West Bank, though, is the settlements have been expanding under a fast rate, especially under this government, where you have settler leaders. Usually the settlers tend to be more right wing. And there are settler leaders now in the Israeli government who have vastly expanded and allowed building of settlements. And this has always been a huge issue with the Americans, where the Americans say, Increasing settlements does not help the peace process. What happens, though, with these settlements is they become recognized parts of Israel. So there are these little islands within the West Bank where it's totally different than the next door Palestinian village. And also between these settlements and the other things that have been built out in the West Bank, it's created this sort of Swiss cheese you know, there are sometimes, you know, if a Palestinian wants to get from one place to another, they might have to take quite a bit of a roundabout way to get there. Because oh, they can't cut through these little settlements that have been sliced off. Yeah, not necessarily. But also, I should also note that on the always things on the ground are so different than what you see on a map. I mean, that just sounds like such a complicated and, and confusing, you know, way to, way to live if you're trying to navigate that just the average person. Yeah, it is very complicated and it is very confusing, especially for Palestinians who are living there. And so when you hear about things like occupation, it is that is what a lot of Palestinians are referring to, that they don't have complete freedom mm. of movement, that they are restricted. There's a lot of restrictions on them. And then you do have military presence. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, 24-7 there's an Israeli soldier sitting on every single Palestinian street, but there are plenty of checkpoints that Palestinians will often have to go through and that especially in the last year and a half, as you know, the Israelis will say, as a result of these attacks, there have been way more Israeli incursions and raids into these areas where there have also been a marked increase in militant activity as well. Now, the West Bank is administered by the Palestinian Authority, whose president is Mahmoud Abbas. Gaza is controlled and administrated by Hamas, two different entities, right. okay? So when we're talking about the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas and their prime minister, Mohammed Shdaya, they don't have control or influence, really, over Hamas. So when we talk about West Bank and, and these settlements, like for Israel, as they continue to kind of slice off some of that, what, what is the end game there as they see it? Well, I mean, depending on the Israelis you talk to, but most of the settlers that you'll talk to is they want to annex the West Bank. They want the West Bank to be completely under Israeli control. They believe that it biblically belongs to them and that it is, you know, they that they wanted in the war and that it should be them. Ask them what you should do with the Palestinians, you know, yeah, the millions of Palestinians the who live there. That's a, they all have different answers. So almost all the settlers believe that, as do now some of the members of the Israeli cabinet, of the Israeli government, who want to annex the West Bank. And some of them have more extreme uh, versions of what they think the Palestinians should do or where they should go. I do want to say, though, that the settlers and these people do not represent the vast majority of the Israeli public mm. because not all of the Israeli public supports the settlers. There is a lot of Israelis who want the Palestinians to have an independent state who would love for every Israeli settler to leave the West Bank, move back into Israel proper and let the Palestinians have a state. They're like, you guys are not being productive by doing this. 
they see them as making everything worse. Right. So I guess I hear you tell me all of this and there's just so much history, so much emotion about land and disputes over territory and just kind of where a home is for the people in this region. How do people think about that when they're going about, you know, kind of their day to day and and when they see everything that's gone on the last two weeks? I mean, the whole idea of land and home and, you know, ownership is such an integral part for both Palestinians and Israelis who are both, you know, historically oppressed people. And so you have two historically oppressed people both claiming the same place as their own. And it is, like I said before, Palestinians often hold their keys, the keys to their homes in what became Israel. For many Israelis, they are the descendants of Holocaust survivors or of the hundreds of thousands or millions of Jews who lived in Arab nations who were expelled or fled from Arab nations because there used to be a large Jewish population in Arab nations as well. And the only place that they could go was Israel, which Israelis will say, you know, the UN voted for this. This was voted in mm. politically. You know, this is this is supposed to be ours. But it's such an integral part of the DNA. You'd be surprised at how many Palestinians can name specific UN resolutions, their numbers. Oh, wow. They can recite to you the years that these things were happened. They're, that's Nicknames for people, for Palestinians, will be 48ers or 67, depending on where they were living when these different wars happened and how that affects their status. Because it cuts that deep and it has that much of an impact on where they are right now. It has a huge impact. If you're a 48er and you have Israeli citizenship, your life is much different than a 67 person who might just have an Israeli residence card and you live in East Jerusalem. Completely affects your day-to-day life and it is within their minds, everybody's minds, essentially at all times. I think it goes to show you that for so long this conflict has, people have tried to just manage the conflict. You know, the peace deals failed. And since then, everybody, Americans, Israelis, Palestinians, have sort of just tried to manage it. And what we've seen is managing this does not work. And just trying to manage this conflict is like trying to manage a gas stovetop with a lit flame next to it and a spout that you can't turn off. So I don't know if this will prompt a actual peace process or an actual resolution of some kind, but I don't have very high hopes for that. I do think that we're in for a very, very long slog over the next few months to potentially years in the region. And, you know, and a very obvious note that people should know is even a perfect historian wouldn't be able to get this all done in 30 minutes. And there will be people who have very different opinions and interpretations of what has happened. They will argue that we should have brought up something that we didn't bring up that was super important. They will argue timelines. They they will argue framing. This is such a emotional and complicated history that I know that we will both probably be getting lots of emails and other sorts of comments about this podcast because nobody can ever lay out the sort of history of this region and of the situation in a way that will satisfy everyone. Really helpful context. Hadas, thank you so much. Thank you. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Anna Sterla, Krista Bowe, Paula Ortiz, and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas, Dan DeZula is our technical director, and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks to Ali Massey and Sharon LaCruz. Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another update. Talk to you then. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.